Welcome to Conversation 360 Podcasts and another episode in the second series of Asia and the West. I'm your host, Susan Bird. We showcase people whose life, work, and experience shed light on what's taking place in and between these two critically important parts of our world. We're especially focused on China, and you'll hear from people with fascinating things to say about other parts of Asia as well. This next episode took place at the Hong Kong Yacht Club, a marvelous Hong Kong institution founded in the late 1800s. I had lunch there with Chin Lim. She's an astute observer of people's behavior and motivations, honed during her professional work first as a business executive and then as a real estate investor. She's peripatetic, a constant traveler to disparate parts of the world where she maintains circles of friends, some from her membership in YPO, the Young President's Organization. She's energetic, optimistic, generous, and smart. I know you'll enjoy hearing what she has to say. The cultural divide is quite wide and diverse in the sense that it's really hard to empathize with each other between the East and the West. An example is a TV series that had the Chinese teachers going to UK and the UK teachers going to China. There were both top schools. The Chinese teachers were literally speaking to the blackboard and the students were making cups of tea at the back of their class because they were bored stiff. And the UK teachers in China were having a blast because the students were easy and seamless and compliant and obedient. That's Chin Lim talking of a television show chronicling the experience of two different high school teachers, one a Chinese teacher with a class in a British high school, the other a British teacher with a class in China. She says it wasn't so much the students who were different, or even the teachers, it was the parents and their different approaches to educating their children well. When talking of the amount of real estate mainland Chinese have purchased in the U.S., Canada, Australia, and elsewhere, Chin says... Because of the accelerated growth that they have had, and a lot of Chinese have made a lot of money, and they are so wealthy. But the um, cultural revolution has never really uh, faded from their genes or their memory. So they are always prepared for some uncertainty, whether it's revolution, whether it's a complete change in regime, whether it's the UN tanking or something. So they always have, you know, a foot in another boat. Chin has a theory that promotion of innovation in the West is enhanced by corporations following Google's example of giving employees a certain amount of time away from their day job to indulge in thinking about other things, even if it appears that they're goofing off. This is where the Chinese or the Asian may lack in that creativity space because they still believe in being productive or working all the time. 24-7. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, they're very industrious, they're very diligent, hardworking, so there's not enough time to just rest, recreate, and innovate. 
We talk about all this and more, including Hong Konger bias, even racism, towards mainland Chinese nouveau riche. Why, if you're driving through the countryside in Australia and see a bucket that says three lemons for a dollar, no one will take more than three for their dollar, nor will anyone steal the money. Whereas that level of trust is not understandable to most Asians, says Chen Lam. And we'll also talk about why the young will probably force environmental cleanup and much more. Thanks for joining me in this 360 conversation, Chen Lim, especially this particular series on Asia in the West. You're very welcome, Susan. It's, so, it's always delightful to talk with you. So my first question of you is, when we consider conversations taking place between Asia and the West, what does that mean? What does that bring to mind for you? Well, my instinctive response would be cultural differences. The cultural divide is quite wide and diverse in the sense that it's really hard to empathize with each other between the East and the West. An example is a TV series that had the Chinese teachers going to UK and the UK teachers going to China. They were both top schools. The Chinese teachers were literally speaking to the blackboard and the students were making cups of tea at the back of their class because they were bored stiff. And the UK teachers in China were having a blast because the students were easy and seamless and compliant and obedient. Was it, this was not a reality show. This was a totally fictional show? No, this is completely a reality show. Oh, it show. was? Okay. And it shows the cultural divide in the sense that um, one student's mother from UK was called in to say, your son made a cup of tea at the back of the room. What do you think of that? And she said, why should he not do that if he needs a cup of tea? He should be uh, able to do that. Whereas a mother in Beijing or Shanghai would be appalled and would probably be a, a tiger mom to his child. So the uh, summary or the gist of the documentary was showing it wasn't so much the teachers that was making much of a difference to the students in the curriculum. It was more that the mothers and their parents were being absolute pressurizing the kids to excel. And in my instance, for example, you get the mom, you know, constantly saying the sacrifice that they make for you. So you, you, you do have pressure. This is, and the pressure is on the Asian side, you're saying. The other ones are not doing that at all. No, no. Mm. I think on the Western side, um, just as long as you can excel in school in the best way that you can to your aptitude. Whereas in the Asian way, you have to do well regardless of your aptitude. Uh-huh. So how well do you think the West is understood, the cultural aspects of the West are understood by Asians? It's, it's really, really... Um, peripheral or superficial sort of understanding by uh, the Asians. For instance, I 
live in Australia for most of my life too. And when you drive through, say, an Australian country town, um, on the way there, you'll see it says lemons for sale. And there's a bucket next to it. So three lemons is a dollar. So firstly, they trust you to only take three and put in a dollar. And secondly, they trust that at the end of the day, if there was more money in the bucket, no one takes it away. And that is a level of trust that no Asian can understand in the heart of Asia. Really? Well, I mean, when you have 22 million people, yeah. uh, survival of the fittest, it's hard to understand that firstly, you'll put in the right amount of money and not steal, and secondly, not steal both the lemon and the money. Fascinating. So how about the other way around? How well do you think the West understands Asia? Well, everyone believes they understand the other party, but I think no one will ever really know the core uh, differences because the tradition and the cultural differences is so wide. Um, as an example, I was, uh, I grew up never leaving leftovers in a restaurant. So you always take it home if there's any leftovers. There's no waste allowed. And if you don't, and which recently happened to me, I didn't ask for leftover because the food wasn't that good, um, the chef would literally come in and say, why did you not want the leftover? Oh, they're insulted. They're insulted. Mm -hmm. Now, and what... In what country is that true? This, is, uh, this was in Penang. Okay. And uh, I basically told uh, the person that my mother cooks better and <laughs> they were not very happy <laughs> with that. Um, whereas um, when I was living in Boston, and I was with a German guy at that time, and he said to me, please, please, please don't ask for leftovers please don't embarrass me. So it's such a different way of looking at the same thing. Cultural stuff. Yes. Does it matter? I mean, ultimately, I've, I mean, I notice these changes. That's one of the reasons why I'm so excited about these conversations, because I'd like more people to have a better understanding. But in the end, does it matter? I mean, so what? Why is this important, if you think it's important? Well, when you are in business, it is really hard to understand the other party, then it's hard to do business. So as an example, I'm a real estate, as you know, and I have a property which is in demand from mainland Chinese. And, and where is it located? In Pok Fulham, okay. in Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. I know where that is, yes. And I have had an intermediary trying to broker a meeting between us since October of last year. And every time closer to the date of the meeting, it gets cancelled, or even on the day of the meeting, it gets cancelled. And the broker says, well, you know, these people, you realize they're very, very high up, their time is very important, and they just can't come to Hong Kong at any time that they can. So, you know, you realize they're very important. and." I emailed back to him to say, so we are not important. Their time is valuable and 
but not ours. So I'm not willing to fly back just for a meeting because I feel 99% of the time they will cancel and reschedule anyway. So I'm not making any effort to meet mm -hmm. with them because they have so far at a 100% rate cancel and reschedule all meetings. And I can't understand this. I cannot understand how they actually get business conducted if they keep missing meetings. <laughs> so just on a very practical business level, it, it seems that it's pretty important that we have an understanding about how each other thinks and operates. What, what about the, um, one of the things that people who are interested in China, no matter where they are, talk about, at least to me, is what is this latest slowdown in the Chinese economy, assuming that there has in fact been one, and I think many people think there has. Has that had an impact on your business? Has it impacted your client's business? What's the deal there? It seems to me that there is a lot of mainland Chinese wanting to move money out of China at an accelerated pace, more than usual. Um, and they have just recently increased in Hong Kong. If you're a foreigner, um, particularly uh, mainland Chinese are the ones that's, mm -hmm. you know, getting the money into Hong Kong, you could be taxed up to 30%. So if a property is worth 10 million Hong Kong, your tax is 3 million. That's quite a lot of tax for mm -hmm. anyone. Mm -hmm. But yet, it seems to not slow down the purchase frenzy by the mainland Chinese. So is, the, is it merely getting assets out, or is it also that people themselves are leaving mainland China? Personally, um, this is not through any uh, you know, statistical survey or anything like that. I personally feel that the mainland Chinese are hedging their bets. Mm. So if anything happens, just like uh, in Hong Kong when the Tiananmen Square incident happened and they all you know, rushed to Canada and Australia to get permanent residency just in case. Mm -hmm. So the mainland Chinese have you know, bought assets all over the world. Um, in Australia, they have bought all these beautiful trophy properties. I mean, they are absolutely gorgeous, but no one's living there. Mm -hmm. And the Australians feel it's, you know, appalling because all these beautiful homes are unlived. So they're buying assets, but they're not necessarily moving themselves. So yes. I've, I've seen that in Vancouver, Canada, for example. There's these beautiful properties along the waterfront, and, and when you look at them at night, there aren't any lights on. Um, and I understand that they're owned by mainland Chinese. So what about individuals in China? Do you have any sense of, are people feeling, gee, this is, uh, this is not what I expected because for the last 30 years there's been double-digit growth, and what does that mean? Or are they pretty oblivious to the fact, it's still a pretty powerful economy, let's face it. Does it matter? I feel that, um, obviously, because of the accelerated growth that they have had and a lot of, Chinese have made a lot of money and they are so wealthy, but the um, cultural revolution has never really uh, faded from their genes or their memory. So they are always prepared 
for some uncertainty, whether it's revolution, whether it's a complete change in regime, whether it's the UN tanking or something. So they always have, you know, a foot in another boat. That's an interesting observation. Now, what about innovation? I think we've talked in other conversations about the need for innovation in this part of the world. And I think in very early conversations a number of years ago, everybody would say, well, you know, the West is still on top of things in terms of innovation and the Chinese are copying stuff. That seems to have changed dramatically. Um, is that your observation? Will, will that continue? I guess one immediately think of technology when you think innovation. So that is an example I would use. Um, I have been an Apple fan. Um, I've had every version of Apple ever since it came about because it's very user-friendly. But the last one, like I have no desire to get Apple 7. And I don't think they have innovate well. Mm. And of course, it's easy to, you know, say Steve Jobs is no longer there and therefore the innovation, the vision is no longer there. And having said that, you look at Huawei and uh, the other Chinese products, which I have never used, but my friends are telling me, you know, this is the way to go because they are user-friendly and, you know, if you drop them or whatever, just buy another one because it's They're so cheap. cheap. Mm-hmm. And so I do believe the West is losing some of the innovative competitiveness. One of the things I really admire about, uh, especially in the uh, high-tech industry, uh, is the free time. They, in fact, make it mandatory for their staff to do nothing on, a, say, 20% of their time, to just be innovative, creative, and don't work on that day. And supposedly, I heard this from a TED Talk, that it's an 80-20 rule. 80% of the innovation, uh, whether it be Facebook or Apple, came from their 20% mm-hmm. downtime mm-hmm. of uh, just being creative. And, you know, even if you play snooker the whole day, you might get an idea. So this, this was a thing that really originated at Google. Was that, mm-hmm. Yes, yes. But this is where the Chinese or the Asian may lack in that creativity space because they still believe in being productive or working all the time. 24-7. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, they're very industrious, they're very diligent, hardworking, so there's not enough time to just rest, recreate, and innovate. So I think this is one area where the Asians can learn from the West to just kind of let people be the master of their own time. And then they will also give you their creativity too. You know, that's a fascinating observation. It could also have to do with the different ways people look at what is innovative. If you see it as disruptive, and it has to be something that just didn't exist before, the Steve Jobs kind of innovation, what it was originally, then that's one thing. And maybe that does come when people 
have the time to just sort of sit and muse over things. And then there's the other innovation, which is really improving on stuff that already exists, whether it's a product or a service. And maybe that is more a result of simply working on and working over and plotting through and improving in an iterative fashion as opposed to a disruptive one. I don't know, but I think it's an interesting thing to think about. Because somehow, when you look at what's happening with Alibaba, Huawei, and a number of other companies that you know about well, they're doing cool stuff. Somehow they're coming up with some ideas that some people think are moving past the West. So it'd be interesting to think about that a little bit more. What about individuals, especially the millennials? What do you know about Asian millennials and what, where their heads are and how they feel about life in general and the opportunities that exist for them? Are they positive? Are they worried about getting jobs? What's there? Um, my feeling is that um, because of the globalization, a lot of um, millennials are the product of both Western and Eastern parents. Um, their parents may have lived in U.S. and come back to, uh, for a job and then they now have a family here. What I find is that they have an interesting perspective of having both Eastern and Western background. And so they are able to synchronize or cross-pollinate the mm. two. And they are uh, quite demanding, I believe, uh, from especially in terms of uh, as employee, they are not expecting just to be a compliant employee. They also demand that you be a good boss too. That's what I have heard. That's a, that's a very Western um, trait, isn't it? Yes. That quite... kind of critical thinking of, wait a minute, I, I, I have a voice here and I, I, I plan to express it. That's new to yes. pieces of age. I have my rights too. Uh -huh. I'm not just going to jump when you say so. So it sounds like this cross-pollinization works pretty well. At least we've gotten a lot of people from Asia coming to the West and then returning and and bringing that as you say, that cross-pollination, which can be so powerful because we all know diversity really leads to more innovation. But it doesn't seem to work so much in the other direction. I mean, not that it doesn't work, but that there isn't much of it. You don't see a lot of Westerners saying, I'm 22 years old and I think I'm going to go try my fortune in China. How do we get more cross-pollination? Or maybe that's not just the only thing that we could do, but what can we do to have a conversation that's more truly bilateral? Well, I believe... I just came back from Sydney and I have found that a lot of my friends' children are learning Mandarin, which I find absolutely fascinating. And or some of them are planning to go to Beijing for internship or learn, learning intensive Mandarin. So there is recognition that China is becoming a powerhouse and you know there's more Chinese in the world than any other race and I do believe that the Westerners are taking notice of the Chinese but sometimes not in the most positive of way mm. because the Chinese are nouveau rich and they came from you know the land and so for instance they need to shout across the field to <laughs> get across what they want 
And so they, they supposedly in Thailand, they are completely being criticized for being rude, for being loud, for being brash, and for, you know, being basically uh, peasant-like. It's true even in Hong Kong, isn't it, that there's a real bias against mainland Chinese? Absolutely, especially a couple of years ago when they were literally being kicked mm -hmm. uh, by by the locals. I was, in fact, whenever I walk around with luggage, I try to look as non-mainland Chinese as possible because, I mean, we all look alike. They were getting mistreated by Hong Kongers. Yes, mm -hmm. yes. Um, so it is true that a lot of people do not respect how they behave, but I do believe that they are starting to take notice of how they can be so methodical and visionary because the Chinese are quite contradictory. They can, on the one hand, act on a day-to-day -day basis, like only very short term, like say, if you go to Shenzhen, they will, say, switch a label on you or something because they are into short-term profits, because anything can happen. They are into uncertainty. They believe anything can happen tomorrow, so let's just make the hay while the sun shines. But on the other hand, you can see that their infrastructure program or their you know, economic planning, it can be a 5-10 year plan. So they are quite contradictory in how they act and plan and how they are organized and how they can be very visionary. Chen, I'm fascinated by your comments about the mainland Chinese who are the nouveau riche and how they're, how they're responded to by people elsewhere in the world. And it occurs to me, I remember, not in my own experience, but certainly having heard about it, that it wasn't that long ago that Americans who went to Europe, for example, were regarded as rubes, as rude, as not understanding how to fit in the culture. They'd take their instant coffee because they think nobody knew how to make coffee like Americans. I mean, kind of crazy when you think about it now. So maybe this is all an issue of timing, that any culture that suddenly becomes wealthy, that comes from a very um, agricultural background that doesn't have sophistication, has to go through these phases, and the rest of us have to just understand that that's, this is their turn. I, I don't know, I'm sort of fascinated by that because I've certainly seen it in Hong Kong, a real bias, in fact, almost a racism that exists. It's fascinating. Um, what, what, what else do you think is really important when you think about this effort to improve our communications between Asia and the West? And by that, I don't mean just communications. I mean really communication, how we how we see ourselves in each other's eyes and, and figure out the thing that you talked about, the cross-fertilization. How do we become global citizens? You are one. So how do we have more of that? Well, obviously, I travel a lot, and I'm in U.S. a lot, as well as Australia, and I live in Hong Kong. And I get that I'm a bridge both East and West. I mm. understand both the Eastern values and the Western viewpoint. I get it. But how to cross the divide and the bridge is, I, I believe, just by 
by contact mm -hmm. because if you uh, have a group of friends, you're going to have one bad egg. You know, someone who disappoints you, who cheats, who betrays you, and then you'll have other friends who are who you enjoy. And the same with any culture, any race that you deal with, you're going to have one bad egg. Now, whether you focus on that one bad mm. egg and try to be like, oh, I'm so weary of this race, you know, they cheated me out of a house and home or something, or you just take it as a learning experience. You just take it as like a lesson to graduate from. Yeah, I often feel that if we had a global requirement that every kid at the age of 18 has to go live in another country, we'd be another world entirely. You know, there's just an experience that comes and a, a sense of how the world works when you actually become part of another culture. It's not the same thing as tourist travel, is it? I, I, I think these kids that are able, the Asian kids who are able to come to the States and then go back and, and um, use what they've learned in a positive way are, are really creating something positive in the world. And I'd like to see that working in all directions. Anything we haven't mentioned that you'd like to, that you think about when you think of how Asia and the West intersect? I, I just have an interesting example. I was at a friend's home in Australia recently, and the mother was, re was busily making dumplings for everyone. And of course, the kids were served first to prepare them to go fishing. And, you know, it was all focused on the kids. And the mother is from Malaysia and the father is Australian, but they have lived worldwide because they're expats in a lot of countries. Mm -hmm. And they have lived in uh, Houston where my sister first met them. Well, anyway, we came back from our, you know, Bondi Beach sort of uh, sojourn. And the mother, first thing that she did was to go through their fishing bag to see what they have. The kids were nowhere to be seen. Mm -hmm. And she found a whole bag of rubbish, i.e., you know, Coca-Cola cans or, you know, plastic bottles and stuff. And she made this, this claim that, you know, the kids, they're just so environmental friendly. They bring all the rubbish home. And I was so happy to hear that because it means that the younger generation is teaching the older one. So maybe if we just bide our time here, the kids are going to show the way. Certainly, I understand that in China, a lot of the excitement about pollution, and one of the reasons, I mean, it's pretty obvious that there's an issue, but that young people have really t spoken up about this and are saying, we demand that, you know, if we're going to be the next generation, we want this place to have air we can breathe. I don't know how important that influence has been, but it is interesting to me that they've spoken up about it because the Western view of China is that people don't speak up about much if they feel that they're speaking to authority. So maybe that's wrong. I don't know. Well, that is definitely one of the Asian trait um, is not to speak up. Uh, I guess we have been for for generations and our ancestors were all uh, you know, being made martyrs or they were oppressed if they spoke out. So it's something in our DNA not to speak out. I mean, even in a classroom setting, I remember when I first went to school in Australia, I would hardly ever put my hand up, even if I know the answer, because you don't speak out, you don't try to stand out. 
Um, so it's definitely an issue. And so whenever I see, especially uh, in Hong Kong or in Malaysia, where the students are speaking out against uh, politicians or against corruption, I am so mm -hmm. impressed. I'm I'm in awe of these students or, or these people who are happy to speak out when they could be jailed and you know absolutely there is legal reasons why they could be jailed but yet they are not um, intimidated they're so courageous i'm very very much in awe of them and so i i have i'm an eternal optimist i have hope that we keep learning and growing, and that even though it seems like around us only negative news are happening, but news are news because good news are commonplace, mm -hmm. and bad news is scarce, and that's why the bad news are being Gets highlighted. Yes. So basically, you're bullish about the, about the future of Asia and the world in general. Yes, I believe that we will collaborate more and more and that we get to understand each other more we have no choice but to do that so what are the challenges or the things that could could mess this up what are the big challenges for asia especially china what could go wrong the problem with china which i see is that they're very much they're very sensitive you cannot insult them. They are very aggressive. So as an example, if the Dalai Lama visits the U.S. or if the Taiwanese president visits the U.S. and speaks to some person in authority, the Chinese get so upset and then they want to throw their weight around and they want to <laughs> threaten you and, and they want to take something away from you. It's such a big deal. Um, they are so sensitive. The, they have very thin skin, and so that to me is the is the issue that the the West wants to be freely self-expressed and say whatever they feel is, you know, an expression of themselves. Whereas the Chinese feel you have to be absolutely diplomatic. You just can't say anything you want. You can't be fully self-expressed. And I believe that when you live in a place where there's over 1 billion people, it is probably true. You can't be fully self-expressed because you could get killed if you are. So that is a challenge. We have to figure out how, how just the modes of expression, how people express themselves, is understood on both sides. And I have a feeling that it must be especially interested, interesting in your position because you you live globally. So the people who are Westerners probably think you know all things Asian, and people who are in this part of the world think you know understand all things Western because you've been there. So you're you're Miss Globality. I'm glad you're such a good voice. Maybe this is a good place to stop. And I'm I'm really appreciative of your perspectives, Jen. You're fascinating. Um, Thank you for participating in Conversations 360 and this series, Asia and the West. Thank you, Susan.
If this is the first time you're listening to Asia and the West podcast, please subscribe on your podcast app of choice. There are plenty more conversations with fascinating people from where this came. And please rate and review us on iTunes. As you may know, iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more credit we get, the more people can discover us. And please tell your friends. Word of mouth is a powerful way to spread the word about the Conversation 360 podcast and this Asia and the West series. There's more information on our website, www.conversation360podcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at Conv360Podcast, that's C-O-N-V 360Podcast, and my personal Twitter is at Susan W. Bird, spelled B-I-R-D. Thanks for listening.